It's a little bit nippy in here today because we turned the heat off a few weeks ago and we decided not to turn it on just for a day because it's going to get hot here in just a couple days. And so it's a little frigid in here, but I'll try to add some hot air for you to warm it up, okay? Sure. <laughs> I ignored that, Betty. This morning, the title is, How Can I Get Eternal Life? How can I get eternal life? Who asked this question? Anyways, many people throughout the centuries have asked this question. Many different religions, the ones that believe in an afterlife, the Egyptians had a very, very complex set of things that they did in order to be prepared for what they considered to be the afterlife. Next question is, what is eternal life? What is eternal life? Now, depending on how much you've thought about it or perhaps studied your scriptures, you will realize that eternal life, that heaven is not just floating up in the clouds somewhere playing a harp. If you read the end of Revelation, we realize that our eternal destiny for those of us who are God's children, who have been born again, our eternal life is a very earth-like existence, but it is the new heavens and the new earth. And it's going to be a wonderful thing. Many people call it the new creation. We start in the Garden of Eden in our scriptures in Genesis chapter 3. And it is a beautiful place, but it is marred by sin. And then you know, Genesis chapter 3 ends with um, angels pointing every way that you would look or turn, and there's a sword between people and God's presence in the Garden of Eden. We are banished from God's presence. And then the scripture progressively unfolds chapter by chapter, book by book, this process that God has laid out to restore us so that we can be with him in the new creation, which, by the way, is even better than the Garden of Eden. In the new creation we read in Revelation chapter 21 that all tears are gone. You can think of the things that bring tears to your eyes today. Even those emotionally repressed people who hardly ever cry, there are moments when the tears burst forth. And in the new creation, or what we can call eternal life, those tears will be wiped away, never to return. You can think of the fractured relationships that you have experienced on this earth. And perhaps you're a little bit jaded because you've had one fractured relationship after another and you have just had enough. But we as God's children, as we sing about that hope, and our hope is in the Lord, when the Lord returns, He is going to establish and he is going to bring restoration to fractured relationships. There will be eternal wholeness. You can think about the joy that you experienced 
I love babies crying, by the way. So nobody's stressed. I want more babies crying. Pinch her. Make her cry some more, okay? No, no, really don't do that. I'm, that might not be good with the parents. But You can think of the, the, the joy, the fullness that you experience when relationships are whole on this earth. Years ago, I had a lady who had experienced a lot of broken relationships and even some abuse. And I was talking to her, and she asked me, why did God allow sin? Why? And I, I knew her well enough to reference the, the joyful parts of her life and the joy of her relationships. And I said, well, if God did not create us in his image and thereby we didn't have a choice, all the joy from the relationships that you do have, that you do consider whole, would not exist. And so, with our ability to be creating God's image, to be moral agents, to have relationships of depth in a God-like fashion, comes the ability to do wrong. But through Christ and what he did in his death and his burial and his resurrection and in his yet future return when he establishes the new creation, we can have an eternal, secure, whole, full relationship with him and with the fellow children of God. So all the joyous moments we have when relationships are right in this life, and often they're fleeting in this life, they will be eternal and full in the next. In the new creation, there will be no more of this nation rising up against nation and this ever, like this, the Teutonic plates as they're shifting and there's all these earthquakes and these struggles among nations in this world of this time when Jesus returns as king and his second coming. He will deal with the nations and he will establish his reign. And in the new creation, through the new Jerusalem, he will reign. You think about all the struggles and disappointments and all the hate and anger that goes with politics in our country. And all the struggles with governments. You've read the hist- I've read many histories of the nations of the world. And it's, our struggle here is not new. There perhaps are some different elements that we have done with the Democratic Republic. But the struggles with governments and the struggles with power are not new. The struggles of people and people not feeling like they're properly represented or cared for. That is not new. And in the new creation, those struggles with government will be gone for all of eternity. There will be no more of these struggles at all. No more fleeting moments of glory for God's children that we experience in this earth. But it will be eternal glory for God's children. And so as we look at this question of how can I get eternal life, it is much more than a fire insurance plan. It is much more than a formula. And my concern this morning, and I think our scripture passage is going to address this, is that 
This is not wrong, folks. We use the word simple gospel or God's simple plan of salvation, and that is not wrong. So don't leave this morning saying, I don't believe in the simple plan of salvation. I do. Yet we discover portions of Scripture like what we're looking at this morning when it's talking about it's answering this very question of how can I be there? How can I have that eternal life in that new creation? That question is answered, and the answer that Jesus gives is very different than the simple plan of salvation. The elements, in some sense, of this idea of how can I get eternal life, the the truth is, it is simple. But when you try to bring this truth and present it to a fallen human being who has sin bonded to them, and to understand that they're in the kingdom of darkness, to understand this concept of redemption, of salvation, of Jesus Christ against the kingdom of light against the kingdom of darkness, and how this is all resolved is a very complex issue. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we dig in to our text this morning. And God, as we are looking at these truths this morning, Jesus, as you uttered these words in your amazing omniscient way, your powerful way, your loving way of addressing this individual who thought he wanted eternal life. May we learn from you. Spirit of God, illuminate our minds. Show us our need. Pray these things. Lord Jesus, in your name, amen. So I've been basically hinting at this and building to this, but to say it plainly this morning, salvation does not fit expectations. Salvation does not fit expectations. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. This is not in our text today, but it leads up to and contrasts with our text today. Mark chapter 10 and verse 13. And they were bringing children to Jesus (coughs) that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So as we deal with this, we've been looking at this theme of a child, and we also uh, made application that this word for child could also be used for servant. Weak ones, ones with no status, is the idea that's being used here. In this case, it was talking about age, but also this word child was used in just some previous verses we looked at in previous weeks, talking about greatness and who was great and who was great in God's kingdom. And as Jesus does as a theme throughout all of his earthly ministry, he flips things on their head. 
the world looks at greatness and power totally different than Jesus does. And he consistently in his teaching flips things on his head. And that is what he's going to be doing in our passage today and what he does here. Jesus made a very strong point. He was indignant. What a strong word. He was indignant with his disciples. That's that's a big deal. He was upset. How could you? In other words, and then he makes, once again, the same lesson he's been teaching and we've been looking at even the last few weeks the idea of greatness, the idea of, in this case, salvation comes through the posture of weakness of a child, the posture of a servant. And so as we look at our text today, it starts in verse 17, Mark 10, 17. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up ran up and knelt before him. Interesting. And this is what this man says. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Interesting question. We're now going to go over, and as often the case, the other gospel writers add other details. And I don't always go to the other gospel writers, but this morning I think... It's helpful for us. It's really going to reinforce what we need to get today. So next we're going to look at Luke in uh, chapter 18 and verse 18. And it says this, And a ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so here we see that this man was a ruler. He was a leader. He had position. He had status. And then let's look at Matthew chapter 19 and verse 20, right in the middle of the narrative. We haven't gotten there yet, but it gives us a new detail. It says, the young man said to him, the young man. So we have another detail. He was a ruler and he was young. And then that leads to what most people call this story in our Bibles. Because as we look more into our text here in a few minutes, we're going to also see that this man was rich. So the phrase or the title that we often hear is the rich young ruler. And so here we have the contrast. Jesus was just talking Several verses in the chapters before about children and about servants, about coming to the kingdom of God in a position of weakness and greatness in the kingdom of God is in a position of weakness and the status of servant and the status of child. And so we are going to continue down that path this morning as we consider this idea of eternal life. And so salvation does not fit expectations. Salvation, next, is presented variously. Salvation is presented variously. Look again at Mark 10 and verse 17. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. So remember, this rich young ruler had just asked Jesus how he could get eternal life. And Jesus is turning him to the law, to the Ten Commandments specifically. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go. Sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come. And follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So, as we consider how we present salvation to others and those who have not yet believed, This is not the normal way that we think of in presenting it. Here Jesus pointed him to the law and then next pointed him to his need to sell all of his possessions. I'm going to try to clarify this in a minute, but I want to just stick with my point here And that is that there are many ways to present someone's need for salvation. And I want to caution you from reducing it to just one way. And if your understanding of salvation is purely limited to what some people would use as the Romans road, that's not bad, but I encourage you to dig deeper. And to understand all the components that go in to salvation. And what it means to be born again. And what that means for us. What it means for someone who doesn't believe. God's salvation plan. If we're going to stick with the word plan. It's a master plan. It's a mansion. It is a mansion that you could spend your life exploring. So as we consider the beauty of redemption, the beauty of salvation, of justification, of sanctification, all these things, it is a mansion that you cannot go into every room for your whole life and understand everything in the room. You can spend your life in your private devotions and in hearing on Sunday morning the preaching of God's word and hear these truths preached and not exhaust them. Their beauty never gets old or fades. And so as we consider presenting salvation to somebody and interacting with people and their needs and their personalities and what we know about them, 
Salvation is much more than perhaps the bullet points that we have been taught. Now here we must consider Jesus' omniscience. Truly, Jesus was able to peer into this man's soul and see things that everybody else could not see. And so that is a consideration, folks, as we present God's truth to others, the truth of salvation, there are things we cannot see inside of their soul. But I also want you to consider that even though Jesus and his omniscience could see into people's soul and see exactly what they needed, many people that Jesus spoke to and presented truth to did not receive it. And even this case here, as Jesus presented exactly according to this man's need, he did not receive it. Now, here, I think I'll take a moment here and try to clarify. Jesus is not teaching that in order to be saved, to be born again, that you have to keep all the law and that you have to give all your possessions away. Jesus was customizing what he, could, what he did perceive about that man and his need and what his hindrances were to understanding his need for salvation. And so you and I, as we deal with other people, and we want them to understand what true life is, spiritual life is, we can exercise discernment, our own understanding of salvation, but also our understanding of the hang-ups in that person's soul. God has given us the ability to exercise discernment to see what's going on and make judgment calls. So much so, the Apostle Paul teaches, I think it's to the Corinthians in his letter, he says that we will even judge angels. We have been given a power of discernment that is amazing. It goes along with the new life that God has given us as children of God. But also we've been given a gift. That is the gift of the Holy Spirit, God's presence, the, God, the Holy Spirit's presence inside of us, living inside of us, a rich, full ministry that enlightens our minds, leads us, helps us understand. Now, I don't want you to drive yourself crazy with worries that you will not interpret the situation right. At some point, you have to trust God, rest in the Lord. Now, if you are not strong in the Lord and you are attempting to serve the Lord, that is something you can address. If you are weak in the Lord, that is something that you can address. But when it comes to, hey, I'm walking with the Lord, I'm trying to do what's right, I'm generally obedient, I'm generally spending time with the Lord in fellowship with Him and in prayer and in His Word on a regular basis, then rest in Him that He'll use you and Trust Him for the rest. Also, as we're considering our own discernment and the Holy Spirit's leading, I want to take note here that Jesus looked at this man and He loved him. And that is a consideration for us. Sometimes because of the pressure we have received that we're supposed to be good Christians and good Witnesses were responding more to the pressure to be a certain way than we are to just loving God and loving others. And that is unhealthy. We are not to treat others as just objects of our program. They are people to be loved 
people to be understood and discerned about. Salvation does not fit expectations. Salvation is presented variously. And then wealth can be a snare. Mark chapter 10, verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, famous phrase, than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. They were surprised before. Now they're really surprised. And said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Jesus is maximizing the fact here that truly this is a divine thing that must happen. Yes, we are, as his children, are involved with presenting the truth and teaching the truth and living the truth. But there is something miraculous about salvation that we must never minimize, we must never forget. I want to give some axioms on wealth and spirituality. Number one, financial blessing is not a total connection to God's blessing. Easy mistake for us to make. And related to this is number two, there is a connection in the Old Testament under the Mosaic Law Covenant between prosperity in the land and obedience, and I should have put in wealth. And so God's blessing in the Old Testament under the Mosaic Law Covenant was connected to prosperity in the land. So it can be a little bit confusing. We can make that a direct correlation to every situation. But wealth is not a direct indicator of God's blessing. But on the flip side, poverty... And suffering are not a total connection to God's judgment. The New Testament is very clear that as we follow Christ, we will suffer, and it is an honor to suffer. Something that we struggle with here in America. I'm not blaming us because how can we take something that we have not experienced and act as if we have? We have not experienced much suffering here in America. But perhaps as we head further into tougher times for Christians in our country, we will begin to understand and appreciate the beauty of the teaching of suffering that is given to us in our New Testaments. But just because you have gone through some poverty and just because you have suffered does not mean that God is judging you. Now, the New Testament does teach that there are times when these things can happen as a matter of punishment. So bringing it to our text today, finally, wealth can be a hindrance to a person's salvation. Now I'll just say it, I've already said it, but I'll say it very clearly. Wealth is a hindrance in America. It really is. We have what are called first world problems. 
We've heard of third world problems. We have first world problems. We've heard so much about this, and it's hard for us to think outside of it. But I do believe, based on what I understand from the scriptures, like our text today, that there is some correlation to our increase of wealth in America and the decrease in Christianity in America, or what I would call true Christianity. There is a nominal Christianity in America. But there has been a decrease of true Christianity in America, I think, that relates to the increase of wealth in Christianity. And I would base that wealth in America, and I would base that on a text like what we're looking at today. Now, this was surprising, shocking news for Jesus' disciples. They looked at this man. He was one of their rulers. He was rich. He looked like he had God's blessing. He looked like he had it all. And he was coming to Jesus asking, hey, I want eternal life. How can I get it? I mean, what's, what, this person looks like any, like a person who would definitely be saved, someone who would definitely get eternal life. They had all the trappings, all the makings. You look at our culture and there are people who have all the trappings of success. And we would think, hey, they're, they're good people. They're going to be good candidates for salvation. And yet Jesus, once again, turns things on our head. And he, as he gives these news, and he gives us that famous phrase, camel to the eye of a needle, in reference to wealth. Let's not reduce salvation down to a formula, but let's be amazed at it. It is supernatural. It is something that God does. And let's consider it that it is God's work. And we as a sower can be a part of it. We as teachers, as disciples, as followers of Christ can spread the good news. But it is God and his supernatural work that makes these things happen. Salvation should be something that we worship over. We're thankful for. Brings us joy. We should be amazed at it. When's the last time you were amazed at your salvation? Salvation does not fit expectations. Salvation is presented variously. Wealth can be a snare. And then finally, life following Christ is not a waste. Once again, just to, as Peter is seeing this, something comes to his mind. He's like, he saw this man reject and walk away. And so what comes to Peter's mind? This is what comes to his mind. Mark 10, 28. Peter began to say to Jesus, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But, again, one of Jesus' famous phrases in his ministry turns things upside down, but many who are first will be last, and the last 
first. Here is something that I think could be lost on many of evangelical Christians. Because we've reduced it down to a formula and to a prayer. Many people have walked the aisle and prayed the prayer and done the formula. And yet their life shows nothing of it. They went for a life insurance plan or a fire insurance plan. And yet, it's seriously doubtful that they truly know Christ because salvation is connected to a lifestyle. And if you notice in Jesus' words to the rich young ruler, he connected his following Christ and inheriting eternal life to the way of a Christian. It's not that the, the lifestyle of a Christian earns salvation. That is very clear in our New Testament. However, the resulting lifestyle of a Christian truly being born again clearly demonstrates that they were a follower of Christ. They're not perfect. They fall. They stumble. They rebel. But clearly, if you look at their life on the whole, is somebody who is attempting to follow Christ in his power with his strength. And so here, Peter picked up on the fact that, hey, this man rejected the lifestyle along with the fact that he wasn't born again. And Peter says, but we have left everything. What's, there, what's in it for us? Here's a rich man who had everything and he rejected eternal life and rejected the lifestyle, and yet we've left everything. What do we get? It's kind of what P- Peter is saying. And Jesus is... Consoling Peter, I don't know if it's a rebuke, I'm not sure, um, that, hey, following me is not a waste. It is connected to a lifestyle of sacrifice, but also of new blessing as you follow me. You get new blessing. Notice he said that there are brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers that you get as you follow me in the body of Christ. You might have left folks before who rejected you or because you became a Christian But when you become a Christian, you get fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters, and you get the houses of your brothers and sisters in Christ. All this in the family of God comes together. But you also get eternal life. And so Peter here was comparing and contrasting himself with this rich man. And Jesus makes it very clear, it is not a waste to follow me. Not only do you get blessing in this life, along with persecution, but you also get eternal life. Salvation does not fit expectations. Salvation is presented variously. Wealth can be a snare. Life following Christ is not a waste. I would challenge you, if you have followed a formula, but your life does not show that you are a follower of Christ, you should search your heart. And make sure you're a true follower of Christ. Make sure you truly have been born again. But if you have confidence in your soul, that by God's grace you are a child of God, I next would challenge you to rejoice, to celebrate, to investigate the beauty of salvation that has been given you. And then finally, for those of you who are true children of God, as you present your salvation to others and you are a witness to Christ, don't reduce it to a formula. 
It is much richer than that. Take a few minutes and respond to the Lord.